Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. As Paul stood before Festus, he gave us an example of how a Christian should live as a citizen of a earthly nation. That is going to be our title this morning. First, a story. A father was trying to reach his fifth grade son the value of tithes and offerings. And the boy listened attentively, and then he went on to say, I still don't understand why you have to pay taxes. To this, the father replied, because the Bible says we must give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and unto God what belongs to God. His son looked puzzled. And he says, well, that's what I'm trying to tell you, Dad. Caesar died a long time ago. (laughs) Good question, right? But it is the age-old question. As Christians, what is our duty to our government? What is the duty to our government? How do we treat our leaders, especially when we don't like them so well? How do we, as citizens of heaven... What does it mean for us with our citizenship here? Do we owe a duty to our nation, or is that secondary? Today on July 3rd, as we look through the book of Acts, we come to a passage that speaks to all of these questions if we are only willing to listen to it. So to understand what it says, we have to know who the people are that are mentioned, and When you do that, and then you look at the words and actions of Paul, I think we kind of get a clear picture of how not he would tell us as to act as citizens of our nation, but a clear picture of how he actually acted as an apostle of God and a citizen of the Roman Empire. And even towards people who maybe uh, didn't warrant respect in human terms. And as we begin look at these people in this passage, I think we need to be informed by keeping the words of Paul in Romans 13, chapter, one, or chapter 13, verse 1, in mind. Paul wrote this. He says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So you see, the words here of Paul speak to a respect for the authorities in our life, both on a personal level and a national level, because God is the one who put them there. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12 is where we'll be. You can turn there now. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. It reads this. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him, And presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with him, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Those are the words of Paul, but as we look at this passage, the life of Paul carries with it the same message as listed here. Let's look at the people that are involved in our passage today. First, we have Festus. Festus was the uh, new governor of the province, and from history we see that he was just and he was efficient. And from the passage we also see that he was still a politician. To those people who say that the Bible is too old to be relevant, we have this message to show us that People are still people, no matter when they lived. And when this passage opens, Festus has just arrived on the job. And I say that we know this just because that is what the, con the, the uh, contemporary historians will tell you about this. See, as we look at this passage, we are looking at the lives of real historical people and how they lived. But we also see that he was just, he was just by the wisdom and restraint that he shows in this passage. And I say the word efficient here because of the amount of time that passes between the various tasks that he has to do here in this passage. Look how it begins in verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him. He's only been there for three days, and he's on his way to see the main city because he's in charge of, and he, um, he wants to meet with the key players in that city. Later, we read in verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. So he completes his tours and meetings in the same city. In other words, he gets done what he feels he needed to get done. And then he went to Caesarea, and then the next day he goes to work on the trial of Paul, which was certainly one of the more emotional issues that he had to deal with. Now, you'll remember that you had a group of guys who had vowed to kill Paul. We read that. You'll also remember that the previous governor had kept Paul under arrest for two years. The next day must have felt like a whirlwind for Paul. So we're told that this man was considered just. That's much nicer than what those historians had to say about his predecessor, Felix. 
But you understand that he is still a politician. Look at verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? He spent eight to ten days in Jerusalem, and he says, I'm willing to bet that with just a little bit of asking around, he could have found out how badly the religious leaders disliked Paul. The Romans also kept pretty detailed legal records and notes if he didn't have a chance to talk with Felix before he got there. Now, I'm sure that there was a note or something or someone around who could have clued him into the fact that this was a blood feud. But he wants to do the favor for the Jews. And you can't really blame him because the man is a politician and they haven't changed all that much. Next, we find out that there was a new high priest named Ishmael, Ben Fiabi, but the attitude here was just the same. We know about this change from historical records, and not from Luke, who simply lumps these guys into the phrase, the chief priests and Jewish leaders. Why does he do that? Because the names had changed, but not the agenda. Look at the rest of the verse. They appeared before him and present the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Now, I don't know if this is the same group of guys from Acts chapter 24 because they had to be really thirsty by now going through the desert, if you can only imagine. But after all, they had taken an oath not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. So they had an issue on their hands. They had a covenant to fulfill. But this played in part into God's will here. This was all part of God's plan. as kind of almost like a little gotcha to them, so to speak. So after all, they had taken the oath not to eat or drink, and Paul was dead uh, until he was dead, whether it was the same group of guys or not, but the attitude was the same. They all wanted Paul dead. That was the goal of all this. They wanted Paul dead because they thought he was a heretic. They thought he, all he did was preach lies. But here God is going to step in and take care of this. We're going to see that Festus is visited by the King Agrippa and Bernice. King Agrippa was descendant from the infamous line of Herod the Great. Bernice was his sister. And on the surface, these seem to be fine. I mean, we can't be held accountable for the actions uh, of our ancestors. But people do tend to be a reflection of their parents. So, you realize that Herod the Great did build a lot of nice things. But he also ordered the death of the boys of Bethlehem. His son, Herod's dad was the Herod mentioned earlier in Acts who was praised as a god and not as a man. So God, the real God, had some worms to eat him, basically. Now that's got to be a really bad way to go, if you think about it. And for these two, well, it alleged in history and basically accepted it as a fact that the reason that this grown man is still traveling with his sisters because they were more intimate than a brother and sister should ever, ever be. And by the way, her first husband was also her uncle. I mean, these two are not exactly pillars of moral righteousness in their community. 
But these are the people, the government representatives, that Paul has to work with. And he does. So let's look at it. When Festus first arrives as the new governor, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the religious and political leaders. But he does not allow them to pressure him into a rushed decision. Look at verse 3. Festus comes to Jerusalem, presumably to look at the city and to meet with the leaders, which he does. When he meets with them, the first item on the agenda is not just to discuss Paul, but to hammer him. Verse 3 says they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing to ambush and kill him along the way. So the question becomes, why the urgency? Why the urgency in all this? Paul has, a, Paul has been in prison for two years. He hasn't had a chance to get out and cause a riot. Not that he ever did. But clearly he hasn't in the last two years. So why the urgency now? Simple. It wasn't that they were concerned with what Paul had really done, but who Paul, what, what Paul really was. They weren't concerned what he did, but who he was. They had decided that Paul should die, and so that all was there was going to be to it. So in other words, they had a mission in mind. Their mission was to go after Paul any which way they could, because they knew what he represented. Last week I talked about people attacking Christians not because they're mad at the Christian, but because they're mad at Jesus Christ. They're mad at what he represents. And when we represent him, we get the brunt of that. But Jesus Christ took care of all of that. They had a new governor, and so they saw this as a new chance. If we can get to this man before Paul has a chance to speak with him, then we can kill Paul. Let's take advantage of him while he's still new, before he gets settled in. So they ask him for a favor. It's just a small thing, right? It's just a small thing. Paul is in prison already, and just to move him here and there was a process. It's amazing what people will do to go to great lengths to ruin another person's life. But God intercedes. Amen? God intercedes every time. He's supposed to get a trial, right? And just have the trial there. And it's such a small thing some people might have fallen for it. Some people might have been willing to compromise in order to curry favor with the important people in order to get what they want. This was a temptation for Festus. And that's why he floats the idea to Paul in a letter. But he is wise enough to at least not give in right away. There is justice to this man. There is a desire to be a wise leader and to do things correctly. So even though they try to rush him into making a mistake, he doesn't do it. He at least waits for that time when the Lord intercedes and says, yes, this is the time. So next we read that he returns and he talks to Paul the next day and he tells Paul the charges that are being made against him. And Paul's response is simple. 
Verse 8, then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. He simply says, I haven't done anything. In his case, it was the truth. And that's why the religious leaders wanted him ambushed and murdered because they knew they had no case against him. And it was a simple defense. It was true. But Paul had a bigger problem. He was facing a politician. No matter how just this man had been offered something that was important to him, so the opportunity was there for him to complete this favor. He could start off with something simple, just like changing the venue of a trial. But the result would be that the Jewish leaders would owe him a favor that he could collect later. He wanted that. He wanted that. So we read his response in verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before these things that are brought against you? Look how Festus frames this. It was probably in part to give himself peace in his own mind. This was about making himself feel better. He says, You will stand trial before me. It won't be the Sanhedrin. It will be me. I'm not going to allow you to be railroaded. If you're truly innocent, go up and give a defense. Here or there, what's the difference? Of course, we know that the difference would have been um, much, much different. And Paul knew this as well. He wasn't going to survive the trip in order to give a defense. And that's why we read what happens next. When Paul realizes the dire strait that he is in, he uses the system not only for his advantage, but to also follow God. You sometimes we rant and rave about our government and our systems. We do this a lot. For just reasons most of the time. But it was the same then as it is now. But here... Paul unjustly accused, wrongfully incarcerated for two years, and now this politician, the representative of the government, is offering to help by putting him in a situation that will probably end his life. I think at this point, Paul might have echoed the words of Ronald Reagan when he said, the nine most, you guys probably know this, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Paul could have ranted and raved. He could have bemoaned his fate. And he could have done a lot of unproductive things. But look what he did instead. Verses 10 and 11. Paul answered, I am not standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death... I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by the Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. I believe that this was a calculated move by Paul. Where most of us might have been tempted to feel sorry for ourselves. I believe that Paul sees the hand of God at work here. And he allows himself to be given over to that hand. Why? Because you'll remember that when this all started, Paul was first put into prison. God came and told him 
exactly what he needed to do next. Remember Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul was very aware of what was going on. God was putting him in an almost impossible situation. Why? Could have been to test him. But I think this is all the inner workings of God's plan. Paul knew perfectly well what he was walking into. He did it anyways because of his love for the Lord. Just like we, as Christians, when we put our faith on the line, God is not trying to punish us. God is providing an opportunity for us to be tested, for us to show God how much we truly do love him. And I know there are times we have opportunities and we let them slip through our fingers. But luckily we have a God that loves us anyway. And God loved Paul. And God loved the people of Rome. Which is why he sent him there. So that he could be a witness to those who needed Christ. I think that Paul now understood that his next destination was Rome. And that the door for ministry in Israel at this time. So here he has the opportunity not just to get away from the religious leaders, but also to get his trip to Rome paid for by the empire. Not just the travel and meals. He was going to get an armed escort as well. He was kind of working the system a little bit. But is he not a human being? Did they not need those things too? God provided an opportunity and he took it. The ability to appeal to Caesar meant Caesar's court, not necessarily Caesar himself, but it had to be in Rome, not one of the provinces in Rome. Reason. This practice was implemented to protect citizens, which Paul was. And when you run into incompetent Leadership, which Festus probably wasn't, but it was a place there for his protection. To get around this, Paul raises the stakes and brings up death. He treats it as a capital case. Legally, it may not have been, but since the religious leaders were plotting to kill him as it was, when Paul puts it to this level, they have sent him to Rome. Which means he knows, again, what he's walking into. He very well may be put to death. Paul could have raged against the system and against the unfairness of all of it, but instead he accepted it. He learned from it. And then he used it to his, uh, to his advantage as best he could. And of course this caused a problem for Festus because if you referred someone to Rome for trial... You had to accuse little things at the charges, and quite honestly, they had nothing on the man. Paul was free of charges. So they had to make this stuff up as they went. Festus is willing to get help from other people. And this is a good thing that he's asking for help, not just from another leader, but one who is part Jewish and is at least familiar with their religious practices. Paul was getting the help that he needed. Paul was getting the help that he needed. But that is basically the background here. 
The people that are involved in this passage and the events that lead up to this trial that Paul is about to go undergo here. And the poor guy has had formal hearings. He had an informal hearing. So no one can say what he's done was wrong, but they won't let him go, and the religious leaders want to kill him. If anyone has had a reason to be frustrated with his government, it was Paul. But what we see from Paul in this story instead is a pretty good outline of how we should behave as citizens of heaven, living temporarily as citizens of this earth. Let's take a look at how he acts for a guideline on how we should act. First, we owe our respect to our government. It doesn't matter if we feel that we, or if it doesn't matter if they deserve it or not. Because I would venture to believe that most of us here believe they probably don't deserve it. And their actions would tell you that they probably don't deserve it. But it doesn't matter if we feel that we, they do or not. As Paul would write in his letter to the Romans in our background passage, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. It's not just he wrote it. He lived it. Paul has been put in a position where now he's going to stay under arrest until he is taken to Rome. It's going to work out for him in a sense, but again, you'd still be pretty frustrated about what's to, about to transpire here. He already knew, but he did it willingly. But before he goes, he has to have one more trial before a guy and his sister who don't exactly have a great reputation. They come from a line for people who don't have reputations at all, which is why they were probably elected in the first place. But look at how he greets them in chapter 26, starting in verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. We have to treat our government and our leaders with respect. We may not always agree with them. And the fact, the price of leadership is that people will not always agree with you. But we should always respect them. That is not just what Paul says but it is also what he does. He backs up his talk. But next, we need to tell them about Jesus. We need to tell them about Jesus. By respecting them, we get the right to be listened to. When they're listening, our message needs to be about Jesus. That is our mission as a church and the people of God. We need to tell them about Jesus. Paul has done this so well and so often that even the religious leaders communicate the point for him. Look at verse 19. They had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. You see, Festus now has heard the center of the message. He doesn't know what to do with it, but he has heard it. And Paul is going to tell them all what to do with it in chapter 26. But here's the point for us as God's people. 
It may be that our central message doesn't exactly fall in line with this. Too many times in the churches in recent past, when it comes to politics, our message has been about so many other things except Jesus. I'm not saying that all of those things aren't right, but what I'm saying is that they aren't important because the central message of the church needs to be Christ. The one whose name we bear. We need to introduce people to him, and when we do that, then they become his disciples. Then he will change their hearts, and the other things will come into line. Some of those other things are vitally important, but until people accept Christ as their Savior, they won't accept his authority. The central message of the church, the central message of our lives, must be Jesus first and always. See, when we've told them about Jesus, when they know him, then we can move in and take care of the next steps. We need to call people to righteousness and do our best to live a, live, to live a righteous life ourselves. Sometimes I see the way that we live as a nation, and I see the way that some people would call themselves Christians and how they live, and I want to ask the question, whatever happened to sin? Whatever happened to sin? It's not that it's gone away, it's that we don't talk about it anymore. We don't talk about sin anymore. And these are some things that we're not supposed to do. Yes, we serve a God of grace. Yes, he died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. But that doesn't mean that we are supposed to indulge in them. We get into relationships that we know we shouldn't. We take the money that we know God has told us to give to him and we spend it on us. We use those words that we know better than. We're mean, we're judgmental, but we've been commanded to love. We greet one person at church and ignore someone else when we definitely know better. We need to call our nation to righteousness and to live that way ourselves. The famous French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville is credited with this quote about America from the 1800s. I sought for America's greatness. I found it not in her fields and forests. I found it not in her mines and factories. I found it not in her Congress and great tribunals. It was only when I entered her churches and heard her pulpits thundering against sin and preaching righteousness that I discovered her greatness. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Now we can discuss later the accuracy of this statement given the current state of both our country's morals and its economy. But the lesson for us to take this morning is that we are supposed to call the people around us to righteousness with our words that is expressed through the demonstration of our lives. Paul didn't just preach Jesus. He lived it. 
Notice that the cornerstone of his defense is that he could say that he had done nothing wrong, that he had lived a righteous life. If we want to see America be great again, then we, the people of God who gather in the church of God, must follow in the footsteps and live and preach lives that reflect the righteousness of God. And finally, we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our nation. Paul was praying for these people in 2629. Paul says, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. You see, his prayer was for salvation for all people. All people, even his nation. That is what our prayer should be. Second Chronicles 7.14, the famous passage, and it was put up on the screen earlier. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We quote this verse often and say that the answer for America is in prayer. It is not the people of the nation. It is his people within the nation. He is saying, when my people pray, when my people humble themselves, then I will hear from them and heal their land. We need to be in prayer for our country. We need to be in prayer for others. We need to be in prayer for our church. We need to be in prayer for those who don't know Jesus Christ. We are called to be righteous, not just in name. We are called to be righteous because this is what God has in store for us. That's what it's saying here. And as Christians and as the people called by his name, our duty and calling is to pray for this nation and its leaders. And if we do that, if we can conform to that, then God will bless America. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us unconditionally, that you continue to bless our nation even when we don't deserve it. Lord, I'm thankful that we have a place that we can freely come to worship your name, to be that beacon, Lord, for those who desperately are seeking your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you use us as a church to accomplish that feat and to further your kingdom, Lord. Lord, keep our eyes and ears open to those opportunities because I know it's so easy to just let it slip away. We have the mentality sometimes of, oh, someone else can pick up the slack here. What good am I? What, what could I possibly give to you, Lord? Sometimes it's our very presence in a place, Lord, that you could use us. Sometimes it's in a crowded room with people that we don't even know. Lord, you know your will, we know, and you know your way. 
I pray that we adhere to that and that we are receptive to it. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do for us, for all that you do for this church, and for all that you do for your people who are called by your name. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. David's going to come and lead us in a song. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning that if you do not know the Lord, that this would be the day that you would come to know him. And we have people here who want to talk with you, who want to walk with you, and lead you in that direction. So I pray if there's any decision that you have today, you will have an opportunity this morning right now to make that. Or if you need to just come and pray, to pray for the nation, to pray for the people, this is your opportunity. God is calling us. Are we going to answer the call? Are we going to answer the call? Dave. Let's stand together, please, as we sing. If you have a decision you want to make this, this morning, as Chris just said, the invitation is available for you, just as I am. Just as I am.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.